When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Combating a pandemic requires a number of interventions. Most of them are based on preventing spread. Barriers, masks, quarantines, lockdowns. The goal is to stop the virus from ever getting into us. But there's an Achilles heel to that plan. We need to know where the virus is in order to stop it. And that requires diagnostic testing. This week, we're going to examine the nature of COVID-19 diagnostic tests. We'll find out how they work and why we need to use them in order to end this pandemic. We'll also dive into the issue of making these tests available to everyone, so even when we can't make a doctor's appointment, we can still know we're safe. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to unveil the secret weapon we have when it comes to ending a pandemic. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Much like an underground river, a pandemic virus can circulate in a community without ever being noticed. It's only when a sinkhole occurs that we even know what is in our midst. When it comes to COVID-19, that sinkhole is the formation of a cluster. But by the time we recognize it has happened, it may be too late to do much other than support the sick. Once the shock of a pandemic does hit, we turn to a variety of interventions, and some of those actions may be considered unwarranted or even cruel, but they are deemed necessary in order to keep the population safe. But there is a way to be able to protect the people and reduce the inconvenience. All we need is a rapid diagnostic test. We've spoken about diagnostics before in the program, but in the context of trying to identify a mysterious disease. When it comes to COVID-19, the picture changes from identifying a mystery to stopping a rising surge. But not all diagnostic tests are alike, and they can serve different purposes. We need to understand which tests exist and how they can help us to defeat a pandemic. And that is why I am joined by Sherry Lynn Ramirez, she is an assistant professor in the chemistry and physics department at Simmons University. She was the deputy director of the Global Learning Studio at the Global Health Education Learning Incubator at Harvard University. She does have a passion for global health and has been a supporter of universal access to rapid COVID-19 testing, both now and even after the pandemic has ended. What is a diagnostic test? A diagnostic test is basically a way for you to know if you have something, a health condition of some kind. It doesn't necessarily have to be a disease. For instance, you might have a diagnostic test to check if someone might be pregnant. You could also have a diagnostic test to check for COVID-19 or HIV or any other condition you suspect someone might have. And they're incredibly useful, not just for medical diagnosis, but also for public health purposes. Well, you said a pregnancy test. How is a pregnancy test a diagnostic test? Well, the way it works is you have someone who potentially suspects they might be pregnant. You can just go to your local drugstore, 
find one of the tests. There are a lot of different brands. You, you take it home and it tells you whether you're pregnant or not within a few minutes. So it's very straightforward. People do this routinely and then you know what the results are and you can take action on them. And depending on the results of the test, if you, for instance, it's positive, you might call your doctor and let them know, and then you can go in and get more testing just to confirm the results and figure out next steps. So it's an incredibly useful tool for people to be able to manage their health. And I would assume that whether it's a diagnostic test for COVID-19 or pregnancy, we pretty much have to align by the same performances. Yeah. So I think in the sense that you want it to be a a reasonably good test, not necessarily a perfect test, because sometimes uh, when you go to your doctor, they may have access to tests that are a little bit better than what you might find at the drugstore. But but generally speaking, they still have to perform really well and adhere to pretty high quality standards. All right. So let's get into the tests that we know exist for COVID-19. There's three of them that have really made the news. And so let's just go through each one of them. The first one is genetic material or genetic test. How do you diagnose COVID using genetics? So this is a a very common kind of test. On the news, you might have heard these referred to as PCR, molecular tests, RT-PCR. They basically, they're tests where you check for the genetic material of the virus. And essentially what the test does is it's kind of like a photocopy machine. It finds really tiny amounts of the virus and it makes lots and lots of copies of them. And if you happen to have the virus, it'll successfully make the copies and you can figure out if what you're looking for is there. It's a good test. One of the drawbacks though, is that it's very expensive to do. It requires lab equipment. It requires specialized personnel. So in the United States, it costs you know around $100 or so. You know, sometimes it costs more or less, depending on what kind of setting you're in. And so it's been very useful for the pandemic, but it's not particularly great for scalability. That's one reason why some of the other tests we're going to talk about um, can be very useful. So let's get into the other test. It's called the antigen test. So an antigen test basically looks for an antigen or a protein that's floating around that's very specific. And it comes from the fact that we have antibodies that originally we find, for instance, in our immune system. And so these antibodies can find antigens very specifically. And so if there's a protein that's on the virus, then we think of that as an antigen that our antigen test can identify. And and the way this works in, in real life is, for instance, if you have a pregnancy test, then you're going to have a certain protein that someone will produce if they're pregnant. And then you use this test. And then the test tells you within a few minutes whether that antigen is present or not. And there's also another important feature of the test, which is a control, so that you can try to make sure that the test is working properly. So if you run the test properly, then you should see, for instance, uh, on a typical test, one line And then if you have a positive result, you're going to have that negative control line. And then you're also going to have the positive or the test line. And so that's really important, too, to make sure that people are using the test properly. Because one common issue is that if you're using this kind of test and you, for instance, don't use enough liquid, the test might not run at all. So if you didn't have that control, you might not realize that that's the problem. And you've already mentioned antibody, and that happens to be the third test, the antibody test. So I would imagine that this is a test that's not looking for the virus, but your antibody response. Does that make sense? Yes, that's exactly right. So the antibody test works a little differently from the others. Instead of using a a nose swab or, or another one of the samples, it actually uses blood because that's where you would look for the antibodies that are in your immune response. So another big difference between the um, antibodies sometimes are also referred as serological tests, is that they actually are most effective a few weeks after someone has been exposed, because that's how long it takes for your immune system to really ramp up and for these antibodies to show up. 
So that's one one thing that's made it useful because then you can see if someone was sick in the past. And so for medical diagnosis and, and management of someone who might be sick, they're particularly useful. But for for diagnosing active infections, they're not actually as useful. We now have all three different types of tests. They are obviously going to be used for different reasons, even though at the end of the day, it's for diagnosis of COVID-19. From your perspective, based on your history, where do you think each one would best be placed? That's a great question. And that gets to a a bigger point, which is we have tools that are for different purposes, right? They are all useful tools, but you really need to understand what the strengths of the tool are, what the limitations of the tool are, what resources you have, what question you're trying to answer, and then you can figure out the best strategy. So for instance, antibody tests, right? They're particularly useful if you're trying to figure out if someone was already sick. So one one way that people are using these, for instance, for the vaccinations, is there's some evidence to suggest that if someone was previously exposed to COVID-19, it's possible they may only need one dose of a, a certain vaccine rather than two. That could potentially be one important application for an antibody test. For PCR or for the molecular genetic tests, they are very important for medical diagnosis because you want to know if someone was ill. One drawback of the Genetic tests, though, is, as I mentioned earlier, they're expensive. And also because they require lab equipment and they take some time to run, you may not get your results back at least for a day, maybe a couple days, sometimes as long as a week, depending on how big the delays are, whether you have to ship your sample somewhere. You know, there are a lot of things that could get in the way. So those delays actually are really problematic because if you have someone who may be sick, you probably want to know as soon as possible so that if needed, if they are sick, they can isolate and protect people around them, including their family. Because that's one thing we found with COVID-19 is that if you are sick, you're very likely to get people in your household sick because they're very close to you. And it's it's kind of hard to you know have good social distancing for people who are in your household. So from a point of view of the, the quality of the test, it's a very high quality test. It's very sensitive, but it also has that drawback where it can take some time and it can also be expensive and it's not particularly accessible if you're not near a place that has a lab. You, you can still mail the test and get the results, but it, there is some time involved. And that time is precious when you're trying to fight an infection. When, then when we come to our antigen tests, like a pregnancy test, these uh, rapid tests have also been used for other conditions like uh, detecting HIV infections um, and other applications. They've been used for a long time, many years. So we have a lot of data about how rapid tests work. We have a lot of manufacturers who have a lot of experience producing rapid tests for a lot of conditions. So so from that point of view, it's great because we have a lot of background information showing that they work and how to use them and how to train people to use them properly, which is really important. When we hear about the different types of diagnostic tests, regardless of where we might see them, we're always being told about this idea of false positives and false negatives and how that can interrupt or get in the way of an efficient diagnostic algorithm. What is the problem with a false positive or false negative and how come we have them in the first place? I'm going to start by saying that no test is perfect. Even molecular tests, PCR, all tests have strengths and weaknesses. And so what we mean by, for instance, a false positive means that you have a positive result in the test, but the person isn't really sick. For instance, if you were taking a pregnancy test, right, and you had a positive result, you might have a lot of implications to that. Maybe you don't want to be pregnant and you see that you have a positive result. And so you think you're pregnant and then you might make you might make some decisions based on that. 
the best practice is to go to a health provider so that they can have some sort of confirmatory testing to make sure that that's the real results or, you know, that that can be confirmed somehow. And that's that's very common in public health because the tests that are typically sold over the counter, they're they're faster, they're less expensive. So th- that's that's typically one of the drawbacks that sometimes they're a little bit less um, precise than something that you might get at your doctor's office. That said, for rapid COVID-19 tests, the current generation of tests are very, very good. So the risk of false positives can vary a bit by brand, but they're actually very low. The risk that you would have a false positive if you didn't have COVID is actually quite low. It's very important, though, to be able to have confirmatory testing so that you don't have people unnecessarily quarantining uh, or isolating if they did happen to become sick afterwards. And it's so... It is important to recognize that false positives can happen, but they can be managed reasonably well. So one way that you could manage false positives is that, for instance, someone could have not only some rapid antigen tests at home, but they might have a box so that they could collect a sample for PCR that they could ship somewhere if they happen to think that they might have a positive test. Uh, An even better thing that you could have potentially, so that you could try to do a verification more quickly, would be if you had a second brand or type of rapid antigen test for the same disease, and you could do another test right away, or you could wait a few hours and repeat the tests. So that can also potentially be a really good strategy at a population level for trying to manage these and manage anxiety associated with potential false positives. But is the best two out of three analogy really something we want to talk about when we're dealing with something like a COVID-19? You know, it's interesting because the tests potentially give you slightly different information. For the PCR test, as I mentioned, what's happening is you have a very small amount of genetic material and you're making copies of it. So what can happen with PCR tests is you could have a positive PCR test, even though you're less likely to be infectious after a long period of time. So for instance, there have been documented cases of people being PCR positive weeks or even months after they're initially ill. And uh, we we have a lot of evidence to suggest that people are likely no longer infectious at that point, but they can still get a positive test. And having a a positive molecular test, even that late, can be good for management of the condition or also figuring out if you need to test other people who are close contacts or other other reasons like that. But it's it's not a, a particularly good test for gauging infectiousness. So that's one thing that rapid antigen tests are very good for. If you're positive on a rapid antigen test, it's very likely that you're you're infectious or contagious. That is a really important application for them. The other thing about antigen tests is that from the intensity of the band for some of them, that can also help you know how contagious you are. It's similar for some of the other rapid tests as well. For instance, if you do a test today and you don't have any band, and then you do another test tomorrow and it's a little darker, and then you do another test a couple hours later and it's much darker, then you have a trend over time that you can help to make decisions about whether you really believe the test result or not. From that point of view, because rapid antigen tests are so in, relatively inexpensive and so accessible and relatively easy to use, you can have much different information than if you just do a one-off PCR test when you suspect someone might have symptoms. The other reason it's really important is that we know from uh, a lot of evidence collected so far that about half of people, the estimates range from about a third to about three quarters, but a, like let's say about half of people who pass along COVID-19 don't even know they're sick because they don't really have noticeable symptoms. So that's one of the big problems with a lot of the tests that are being done right now, that if they're only done in people with symptoms, that means you're missing half of the people who might be spreading the virus. 
So that's another re reason why governments are taking a really hard look. And a lot of governments in the world are already doing this. They're giving people the opportunity to do rapid testing at home or at the work or school so that you can try to just see who might be ill, regardless of whether they have symptoms or not. A false positive is something that we try and minimize as best as possible. A false negative is just one of those situations where it may have missed something. And I think in that particular sense, we have to really start talking about the idea of sensitivity. We understand that it has to be specific to the COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2, but I believe that the sensitivity is something that a lot of people need to appreciate and understand in order for them to realize that false negatives are something that we also try and avoid, but sometimes it's almost impossible. So, th so the, the difference between the false positive scenario and the false negative scenario is that for false positives, you, you, in the first place, you're probably going to have a very small number of them. Um, obviously, if you're testing a whole population, you'd have you know, more in terms of absolute numbers. But in terms of probability, it's a relatively small probability. And it can be managed fairly easily by doing a second rapid test or by having some confirmatory testing that's easily available. The difference between that and the situation with false negatives is if you have a test and someone is sick, but the test comes out negative, then they might think, oh, I'm fine. I can go visit my grandmother or, or whatever the case may be. And they could end up making someone sick without realizing it. And that's been happening a lot with COVID-19. So when you, when you talk about sensitivity, that's what you're talking about, this risk that you might miss someone with a particular test who would otherwise be sick and able to spread the disease. So... So that's one, one area where actually our public health metrics really need to catch up with the times, <laughs> because one big problem is we don't really have anything that we report in terms of sensitivity to infectiousness. And that's really what antigen tests measure extremely well. But when you're just talking about sensitivity in general, um, when you talk about, well, someone who may be positive by a PCR test weeks after they're no longer infectious, that's when you get into um, these complaints that rapid antigen tests aren't very sensitive. But when you look specifically at comparing, for instance, PCR with rapid antigen tests on the question of, is this person likely to be infectious? They perform extremely well. And that's incredibly important. Another way that people have been trying to figure out whether people are sick from COVID or not is temperature checks. And temperature checks don't work particularly well for COVID, but it's a similar idea. It's, it's basically like having a temperature check. It's a COVID check that you could just have at home or you could go to the drugstore that your government could help provide for you as is being done in other parts of the world. In Nova Scotia, it's been a leading example of community-based testing, and they have been doing that for, for quite some time and have been able to keep the infection rates really low. And they actually have an expression that they use, neg for the night, which means that when people get tested, they understand that that test is really good for about a day in terms of, you know, if you have a negative test, then you're probably unlikely to be infectious. But if you take a test tomorrow, that could change depending on whether you've actually been infected or not. So it's really important to ensure that you are communicating with people about what the tests mean so that they know how to protect themselves. A diagnostic test can be an answer to quell our fears, but it can also be a source of trouble thanks to inequality. When testing is allowed for only a given few, it can leave a community fractured between those who know and carry on as usual and those who don't and must still live in fear. 
This has happened to some extent over the last year, with sports, entertainment, and politics having the chance to test long before the rest of the population. But that pales in comparison to the discrepancies that exist when we start to test people for the purposes of all that was halted before, like travel, trade, and even hugging your loved ones. Sherry Lynn Ramirez has been advocating for widespread diagnostic tests and is going to help us understand why we need them, not just to stop COVID-19, but also to put a halt to the restrictions we have suffered. Take us through your position on testing for everyone. Why don't we have it by now? <laughs> it's not a question of whether we should have it. I think there are people who have been screaming from the mountaintops that we need it for a very long time, close to a year, if not already a year. It, the, the WHO has been saying test, test, test since at least March of last year. We know that we need to test. The countries that are currently managing it well have done a lot of testing and, and also other public health measures that we know work. So New Zealand has been able to eliminate the virus on a couple of occasions. We have countries like Japan, Vietnam, uh, South Korea that have done really good testing and contact tracing in addition to other protective measures. And in, in some parts of the world, people are living reasonably you know, normal pre-COVID lives right now because of these measures that have been taken and the, the real efforts of governments to really you know, step up from the beginning or whatever point they realized that they really needed to do this and have a lot of collective action around it. So I, I think a lot of countries are realizing you know, how, how powerful and underutilized testing is. And I do think that one of the big risks, though, is that because people were kind of holding on to see what would happen with the vaccinations, now that we have access to vaccinations in some parts of the world, there's this sort of temptation to say, oh, OK, we have the vaccine, so we don't have to worry as much about testing. And in fact, we've seen testing rates drop, which is very worrisome because we know that some of these viral variants may be able to get around some of the vaccination protection. And there could be new viral variants that, that may emerge. So the more that this spreads unchecked, the more there's a risk to basically setting back all of our progress. So it's especially important to make sure that people understand the value of continuing vaccinations at full speed, but also doing things like frequent rapid testing and making it available to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. One thing that you mentioned there just simply gets me excited, and that is elimination. Because we now know that the vaccine is not going to eliminate this particular virus. We also know that using masks, washing your hands, and other protective measures is only going to go so far because compliance is simply just not there in the majority of the population. So how is it then that a diagnostic test can actually help us to get to that elimination threshold? I, I think this, this concept of compliance has really, honestly, it makes me a little bit upset to hear some of these stories in the news because there's this tendency, which is not unique to COVID. I think it's kind of history has repeated itself a lot on this one. This idea that, oh, well, if you got sick, it's probably your fault because you weren't taking good enough care of yourself or, or whatever the case may be. The reality is, humans need to breathe to survive. And if you breathe on someone, you could make them sick. So even if you wear masks, even if you wash your hands, even if you do all these things, if you don't have access to N95s and you're not, you know, like there, there could be things you could do to effectively bring the risk to zero, but the reality is they would be very difficult to do in practice for everyone. So that's why we need to do the best we can. And 
have people continue to wear masks, have people social distance, have people wash their hands, you know, do all these things we know we're supposed to do. There may be people who, who don't do some of these things because they forget or because they, they don't want to for some reason. And in, in terms of population health, you don't need to have 100% of the people doing 100% of the things 100% of the time. But if you have enough of them doing it, that can really make a difference at a population level. So that's why it's really important to have diagnostic tests, because that's been a really big missing piece that we've had. There are a lot of people who have good intentions, who have frankly been forgotten by politicians who just have these indefinite lockdowns. And it's it's kind of unconscionable at this point, honestly, because we've had months of having rapid tests, for instance, available, and for various reasons, including regulatory barriers, we just haven't been able to scale them up as quickly as we need to, to give people that power to be able to know whether they're likely to be infectious or not and take action based on that. I also think that it offers a stopgap. By having a diagnostic test there, it gives you that opportunity to at least find out whether or not there's going to be a consequence. And so in that light, I think it gives people the opportunity to be human as opposed to be automatons in order for them to stay as safe as possible. Absolutely. And this is such a big point because I've forgotten to wear my mask sometimes. I step outside and suddenly I feel air on my face or I smell something and I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot to put my mask on. And then I run back in and I put it on right away. But you know, if, if there was someone who arrested me every time I walked outside for a second and didn't have a mask on or someone who took a picture of me if I were like famous or something, that would not be good. But you know, it happens to all of us, even people who know that we should be doing certain things. I mean, we've seen this repeatedly throughout history. For instance, you know, doctors not washing their hands. Uh, this, this still happens today even though we know the importance of hand washing. And there are a lot of people spending really serious effort trying to understand why that happens and how it can be prevented. It's a similar situation here that I think you kind of have to just give people the benefit of a doubt. If people aren't doing what you think they should be doing to protect their health, you know, or what we, we know based on evidence they should be doing, figure out why that is. Talk to them. Maybe they can't afford to buy a mask. You know, maybe they don't believe that masks work. Maybe there could be any number of reasons why they're not doing what you think they should be doing. So it's really important for policymakers, uh, practitioners, everyone to, to just not immediately judge and think, well, this person is stupid or ignorant or, you know, they're, they're willfully trying to make other people sick. People don't change their minds when you call them stupid. It, it just doesn't really work that way. So if you if you try to understand what's going on from from a, a sort of behavioral point of view and, and try to, to make lower the barriers, there's also this concept of, of nudging where you want to basically nudge people to do the right thing. You want to give them incentives and that tends to work out reasonably well. What about using a diagnostic test as a deterrent? Much like we've seen here in Canada, if you fly into our country, you have to have a negative test before you get on the plane. You have to prove that you don't have the virus after you get off the plane, too. It's a huge deterrent, or at least supposed to be a deterrent. Do you think we can start using diagnostic tests as a way of helping to improve safe behavior or at least not doing intentional unsafe behavior? Absolutely. I, I do think that there's a there's a huge role, especially in, in safety and travel, to improve our procedures. But I, I will say one thing. I think there's also this false sense of security that gets created with some of these policies. And I'll give you an example. It, especially for a lot of these policies around airline travel, it's actually hard for people to comply with that. And so we've even seen examples of, of, of things happening where, for instance, in France, the, the, a crime ring was busted because they were selling negative tests. I, I don't think it probably happens that often, but you see people start doing these things that are 
very counterproductive. For instance, you, you take a test and it's negative three days before you travel. Well, by the third day, you could already be sick and infectious when you get on that plane. So these policies just, I, honestly, I, I just don't really, I think that they could be made to make travel much safer, but the way that they're currently being applied is, is not really ideal or follows the best evidence or, or frankly is the best use of resources. If I had to design an airline policy, the week before you travel, you do this test maybe every other day, you book your airline reservation. It comes with a little packet of five rapid tests, for instance, and you take those rapid tests every day before you travel. And, and that way you, okay, you have a negative test today and tomorrow, or maybe every other day. And if you end up being positive, you, you get a refund for your travel or, or whatnot. There's some, something so that you don't get penalized if you end up being positive. So people are less likely to hide their results. You show up to the airport, you take another test there just to make sure you don't happen to be positive. Then you get on your plane, you get to wherever you're going, maybe you get another test there. Sometimes we have really long flights and that could be an issue. So I, I really think if you had a more thoughtful approach to testing and you built it in such a way that people weren't being penalized if they did have a positive result. And that brings me into the realm of immunity passports. I mean, you already talked about the fact that there were some groups trying to sell negative tests. But what about the idea of using a diagnostic test to show that antibodies are actually there and that it's not a vaccination record that you have to show, but an actual proof of antibodies before you get on a plane or before you go into another country? So I, I think, you know, there, there could be something to that. I think there are a couple of issues, though. So one issue is that antibody tests are a bit more invasive generally because they use blood as a sample. Um, and I think that that could have a couple of implications. So there might be less compliance because people might not want to give a blood sample. There could also be privacy issues around that that are really important to consider. Concerns about your genetic information being used against you. It's basically a legitimate concern. You know, um, it's it's unlikely, but it's, it is a legitimate concern. I, I do think that that's one level of concern. I think another level of concern is that we're still trying to understand exactly what kind of um, antibodies are really going to be most protective against getting infected again. And also this sort of idea that we have viral variants floating around that may be able to overcome what we expect would be good protection. I'm not sure that we would really be able to use it for the application you suggest. Um, it's possible that with more evidence and you know a, a range of, of, of tests that we could have enough information to make a decision on that. Maybe it would work. But I think right now I would be very cautious about that. I mean, I think it's it's good to know that people are vaccinated. And I think if people happen to have that information, um, that either they were vaccinated or they happen to have a, an antibody or serology test result, that could be part of a sort of picture um, that could be used as part of a of a of a an immunity passport or a sort of health passport. And so I think that if you have a platform, and a lot of people around the world are trying to create digital platforms that could that could incorporate this kind of information, you could incorporate vaccination status, you could incorporate various diagnostic testing results that are done at different times. You could have a sort of picture of risk and that you could use that maybe to help people make decisions about whether someone should be admitted to a certain location or whatnot. The other thing I'll add about that is I think any of these systems to the extent possible, should be voluntary. I think people should be given incentives to participate. I think their their dignity, their right to choose what happens to their body and their biological information, that should be left up to the individual. And I think that for any of these approaches, there should be alternatives offered. Um, we've seen this in some of the school testing programs where, for instance, if, if, a, if a student refuses to get tested, there might be some, a, a, some other accommodation that gets offered to protect the health of that student and those around them in the event that they might be infectious. So I, I do think that for some people, you know, it's going to take 
a little bit more time and information to really you know, convince them that this is what they should be doing. I think that what, you know, what we've seen is that once people really understand how these tests work and how they can benefit them, that it, it, it actually is a huge source of relief and empowerment. And, uh, but I, I do think that you need to be careful about this. You brought this up at the very beginning, and that is that the World Health Organization has an essential list of diagnostic tests, the EDL. Do you feel that the diagnostic tests that we have at the moment are strong enough to be able to be disseminated worldwide so that they end up on this essential list? And if so, which ones do you think would best be used to essentially improve our ability to eliminate or at least to control this virus? The EDL was updated recently, and so it does include a number of these tests. Which ones of the three that we talked about at the top would you feel should be included? All of them. <laughs> so I think right now we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? We need all the tools in our toolkit that we need. So we just need to understand what we're using them for and why. So I, I still think, you know, there's a place for genetic and molecular testing, even if you do have access to rapid antigen tests, because for instance, you might want to know if someone was ill previously. So they may no longer be infectious, but maybe they were ill two weeks ago. And you, you may want to know, especially in, in situations, for instance, like New Zealand, right? They really want to know if anyone happens to be sick or, or was sick recently because they really want to bring their counts back to zero again. So in that sense, you know, it may make more sense for them to do something like molecular testing, especially because they don't have to be testing all the time for rapid antigen tests because they're less expensive, because they're fast, because they can help prevent outbreaks. It's really important to make sure that those are available widely, regardless of ability to pay, because then you're, you're gonna have a much better tool for preventing outbreaks. And you know why we know that these work? <laughs> you actually can see the answer every time you turn on TV and you see a celebrity not wearing a mask doing an interview, or you watch a sports game and you see you know Tom Brady holding up his trophy after the Super Bowl. You know The reason you were able to watch him smile on live TV is because they have really strict protocols at the National Football League, the NFL in the United States. Um, and they've really been a leader in showing how frequent rapid testing, including molecular diagnostic tests, including rapid tests, can be really important for improving safety. So we know that these things work. Um, they've been shown around the world. And the question is, what protocols are you using? And um, how do you ensure compliance? How do you pay for these programs? And rapid antigen tests can really help make a lot of these uh, possibilities much more accessible. That takes us to the end of the discussion but I'm sure we haven't answered all your questions about diagnostic tests and COVID-19. Tweet me at jatetro or email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. You can also head over to speakpipe.com slash sass and post your question there. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Sherry Lynn Ramirez and her papers. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Deal of Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week, stay safe, and as always, make sure to show him some sass.